The following audio is from Heritage Christian Fellowship. More information about Heritage Christian Fellowship is available at heritagefellowship.net. Hey, my name is Paul. I'm one of the pastors here. I've got new pants for today. I'm very excited about that. New pants for a new sermon series. I had like two pair of pants for like two years, and my wife was like, you've got to get some pants. And so she bought me some pants. I'm feeling fancy. Uh, We're starting a new series just for three weeks, like Jeremy said, Love, Marriage, Family. I'm excited to share with you uh, the things that, that God has revealed is we've kind of just sat this week as a staff in this, it's talking about love. Do you know how simple and yet deeply profound the topic of love is? Our minds are both blown and it, it elicits worship and it's this simple concept and yet the plums of which you'll never fully, uh, uh, you'll, you'll never find the depth of, of what, what is love, especially when we think about love as God offers it to us. If you, if you brought a Bible today, I'd encourage you to open up to chapter 5 of Ephesians. We're going to be camped in Ephesians a little bit today, but really this is going to kind of be a springboard for us as we launch kind of throughout all of Scripture is we're going to try to wrap our mind around two things today. We're trying to answer two questions today. We're going to try to answer the question, what is love and how do I love? Those are the two things we want to get done with today's message. What is love and how do I love? If you're familiar with the book of Ephesians, it's an awesome letter. The Apostle Paul writes it. It's kind of broken up into two sections. Uh, the first three chapters are kind of uh, the indicative, the how come, is, is Paul unpacks the gospel, the gospel story. He talks about how Christ has reconciled all creation to himself and to, and to God. The first three chapters. The, the next three chapters, chapters 4, 5, and 6, we get sort of uh, the, in, the, the, the indicative or the imperative. So the first part's the how come, the second part is the how to. In the second half of Ephesians, Paul talks about uh, the gospel story and, and how it, it intersects with our story and how do we as, as followers of Jesus live in light of this amazing love story that is God's pursuit of humankind. And, and we, we look at how Christ has united people from all nations to himself and to one another in and through his church. And so this is the context within which our verses are going to be. We're going to look at the first two verses of chapter 5 today. And as we, as, we, as we look at Ephesians, Paul, there's some beautiful, poetic, and truthful language in the book of Ephesians. He talks about how those who were once dead in their sins and trespasses, those of us that have been saved by Christ, we were once dead in our sins and our trespasses, but we've been made alive together with Christ. It's been the love and the mercy and the grace of God that has accomplished this amazing thing. And in light of what God has done in our lives, making us alive and reconciling us to himself and to one another, Paul exhorts us. He exhorts us to, to, to live lives of worshipful gratitude. And in the second half of the book, where our text is, it's, it's very practical. Paul is talking about part of, of worshipful gratitude is, is living in love and in unity with one another. And then he talks about a lot of these human relationships that we live in the context of. He talks about living in love and in unity within the body of Christ, where we, as brothers and sisters in Christ, we, we, we learn to love and, and live in unity with one another. And he's actually writing this in a, in a racially segregated uh, uh, context. And he's even talking about the unity beyond races. There's no longer slave nor free, male nor female, uh, Jew nor Greek. We are all one in Christ Jesus. And then he talks about how we live in young, young, uh, love and unity within the context of marriage. He talks about uh, parents and children. He talks about bond servants and slaves and masters. And in the middle of all that, he gives us these two verses that I want us to kind of look at as a springboard this morning. Ephesians 5, verses 1 and 2. As he's exhorting us to walk in love, Paul says, Therefore be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love 
As Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and a sacrifice to God. Two verses, but there are loaded two verses. Paul is calling the church, those of us that are in Christ, to a new life of love. And he, he, he exhorts us to love according to this radical standard that has been set by God. For those in the church, those who are children of God, Paul says to imitate God, to walk in love with Christ as our ultimate example. And Christ's example is that he gave himself up as a fragrant offering, a sacrifice to God on behalf of others. This simply yet profound invitation wasn't just for the church in Ephesus when Paul wrote these words 2,000 years ago. God inspired Paul to write these words to them then, but also to us today. These are for us today. Therefore, if you're someone who calls yourself a follower of Jesus, if you're a Christian, you are exhorted by God through the Apostle Paul to walk in love, to love God and love others in this radical way. And so today, let's look at these verses. Let's look at the whole of Scripture as we seek to understand what is love and how it is that we can love. Pray with me. Father, I know... We talk so much about love within our culture and even within our churches. And God, in a certain sense, God, I feel as if I'm a bit saturated when it comes to dialogue about love and and invitations to love and opportunities to love. And yet, God, I also confess that as I sat in the scriptures this week, as I interacted with my brothers and sisters in Christ around love, God, that my mind was refreshed and renewed and my vision was cleared. So God, I pray for our church. God, I pray for us gathered here today and those that are online, that God, you would utilize these next few moments as we look at the scriptures, as we, as we ask about what love is and as we consider what it looks like for us to love God, would you make it clear to us? God, not just, a, not just an intellectual thing, but God, may it be a, a, an affections thing that, that God, we, we learn to live and to walk in love, the very love that you have revealed to us. God, may we be imitators of you in our love. Open our eyes this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, Wisconsin, I, I lived there for 19 years. It's a beautiful state. If you've ever been to Wisconsin, rolling hills, uh, beautiful inland lakes, the Great Lakes, dairy farms, beautiful hardwood forests. It's, it's a beautiful state. But one thing that Wisconsin lacks is, is mountains. And I lived there for 19 years, and uh, not a week went by where I didn't lament to my wife how much I missed the mountains. I remember when I first moved there, I was talking about how much I missed the mountains. And somewhere along the way, I was told that there is, in fact, a mountain in suburban Milwaukee. There's a town called Oconomowoc. It has five O's in the title. And in the middle of this town, they have something they call Mount Olympus. And I was pretty excited about Mount Olympus. I thought, well, maybe Wisconsin does have a mountain. And I drove out there to see it, and I was like, okay, where's the mountain? It's right there. I'm like, that, that pile of dirt? And I got a picture of, I think, Mount, that's Mount Olympus right there. Yeah, that's Mount Olympus in Oconomowoc, Wisconsin. It's a ski hill, which is hilarious. Uh, and I was like, okay, that's a mountain. And I'm like, well, how'd that mountain get there? Glacial formations? Like, no, it used to be a dump. And they heaped all the garbage into a pile and turned it into a ski hill. I'm like, oh, so, so you're calling a pile of trash a mountain. I, I got it. I got what you're doing there. I don't think a mountains, uh, I don't think the definition of a mountain should be, sub, should be subjective. I grew up in the mountains, I know mountains, and I love mountains. Uh, I backpacked in mountains my whole life. And you know, there's something really cool. My first week on staff here, Pastor Aaron came into my office and he's like, hey, let's go for a drive. I'm like, all right. And I'd barely been in the Rogue Valley, and I love the mountains in the Rogue Valley. We drove up to Mount Ashland, and the first time you look down and you see Mount Shasta, 
just your stomach just tingles. Now that's a mountain right there. That, not a pile of trash. That's a giant hunk of volcanic rock. That is a mountain, 14,000 feet tall, jutting into the sky. You see, there are objective standards when defining a mountain. You can't just call a pile of trash a mountain. It doesn't magically turn a pile of trash into a mountain. It will always be a pile of trash, all due respect to Wisconsin and Oconomowoc. I share that because I think about the word love. We throw that word around so much in our culture, in our vernacular. We have many definitions, many expressions, many uses. And the word love has become this subjective term in our culture, the meaning of which belongs to the user. A user can define love any way he or she wants. We can say love wins, we can say love is love, and that is anchored in their understanding of love. There's nothing objective that manages this conversation anymore. You you say you love this, I say I love that, what's the matter? You, You can't tell me what love is, I can't tell you what love... Well, you know, what if you're saying a pile of trash is love? What if love is not subjective? What if it's not open for human interpretation? What if love can be defined? In fact, what if love must be defined? What if by playing loose and fast with the word love, we're actually playing loose and fast with God himself? What if love is a glorious, magnificent mountain and not a pile of trash? What if it's an objective, concrete, definable, and knowable thing, not subject to the fickle whims of the the one claiming love? What if love is rooted and anchored and grounded into the one who is unmoving and unchanging and who knows all things? You see, love finds its origins and its meaning in God himself. God is love. Do you remember what John says in 1 John chapter 4, verses 7 and 8? He says, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Verse 8, Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. And so the first question I wanted us to answer today is, what is love? Simple, right? But maybe it's not so simple. If you've grown up in the church, no doubt you've heard teachings on love. You've probably heard that there's multiple Greek words that that, that we we, we use the word love to interpret different words that mean different aspects of love. If you were here last summer when we taught through the book of 1 John, actually Pastor Mitch shared those four words from the stage. I'll share them with you again today. Uh, C.S. Lewis wrote a book called The Four Loves where he kind of dives into these different Greek words that we use for the word love. He, he talks about the word eros, which is where we get the word erotic. This is, this is a, a romantic love where lovers are hungry for one another. There's another Greek word called phylos. It's where we get the word Philadelphia. Philadelphia is the city of brotherly love. And, and this phylos love is friendship love. Where two people are armed, are locked arm in arm and, and joyously pursuing a something together toward the same goal. And then there's storge love, which is sort of a, it's the simplest of the loves. It's, it's an affectionate love. You have an old car that you can't get rid of, an old sweater that you love. You've got this affection for this thing, this love for this thing. And then, as you probably all know, if you've been in church for any length of time, there's this word for divine love. It's the, the, the pinnacle of love. It's called agape. And agape is a divine love characterized by sacrifice in the pursuit of another person's good. Those all help us understand the, 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 the breadth of love. It's it's simpler than just this word, and and there's some concrete things that we can begin to anchor our understanding to love, even with with those words. But I discovered something this week I'd never heard of before. There was a a famous American uh, preacher who was at the center of the Great Awakening, a a, a reformed thinker named Jonathan Edwards, who lived in the 1700s on the the East Coast. 
And Jonathan Edwards was, was a brilliant guy. There's a whole bunch about him. But, but he, he, he took love and he sort of divided it into two camps. And I, I'd never heard of this before until I was studying for today's message. He, called about, he, called, he said there's two kinds of love. There is, a, there is a love of complacency and a love of benevolence. And we can divide all love into those two camps. And my mind resonated with the way in which Edwards approached love. A love of complacency is a love that is rooted in the value of the thing that is loved. So a love of complacency is a love in something or someone because that thing or that person is inherently lovely, attractive, beautiful. I love the ocean because I love the smell of salt. I love the ocean breezes. I love the beach. I love the rhythm of the waves. I love the blue. It's lovely. And when I stand on the beach of the coast, it is so lovely. It does something powerful in me. So the idea of a love of complacency is it's, it's, it's ultimately a self-serving love because this love is based on what the person or the object does for me. Not necessarily a bad thing, just a way to think about it. And then secondly, there's the love of benevolence. Love of benevolence is rooted in the character of the one who is loving. It's not about the loveliness of the object. It's about the loving nature of the one who is extending love. It's a love of benevolence. It's to love even when the object is not lovely or worthy of love. This is a self-sacrificing love, and it's based on what's best for the other. Love of complacency and a love of benevolence. So we can begin to think, okay, love's got some there's, some, there's a sandbox here for us to begin to think about love. And then if we think about it biblically, we, we have to come to the conclusion that love is not a human concept or a human construct. It's, it's, it's rooted, and it finds its origin in God himself. I was reminded this week as I read through just different position papers and looked at different scriptures, I was reminded that the first and most important thing that we must recognize about love is that it's all about God. As one theologian writes, love both originates in and is exhausted by our triune maker, Father, Son, and Spirit. In his high priestly prayer in John 17, Jesus was gathered with his disciples the night that he was betrayed, and he offers up this incredible prayer. He prays for the disciples. He prays for the future church. He prays for himself. And in this prayer, Jesus also, as he's praying for himself, he says some incredible things. In verse 5 of John 17, Jesus says, And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory I had before the world began. Okay, so we're reminded that Jesus is preeminent, that he's always been. We're reminded that the triune Godhead preexists human history. And in verse 24 of chapter 17, we've got to catch these words. It's powerful when it comes to love. Jesus says this, Father, as he's praying, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, the church, uh, that they may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me. And here's what he says, listen. Because you loved me, Father, you loved me before the foundation of the world. As one writer says, press pause for a second when you read that phrase. Imagine you didn't exist. In fact, imagine that nothing had ever existed. No people, no places, no things. Is anything left? Well, according to Jesus, yes. There is love. You loved me before the foundation of the world. This has always been. Love has always been between the eternally loving, eternally secure, and eternally complete Godhead. This is the origin of love. It, it predates history. It's always been. 
Before the foundation of the world, the Father was loving the Son and the Spirit. The Son was loving the Father and the Spirit. The Spirit was loving the Father and the Son. Jerry and I were talking about this this week, and he introduced me to a theological term I had probably heard but had forgotten. And the term is uh, perichoresis. And this, is a, this term, it, means, it, it, it refers to the three persons of, of, the, of the Godhead occupying the same divine space. And so when we talk about God, we cannot see God without seeing all three persons at the same time. And, and what Jesus tells us is that the, the, the relationship between the three persons of the Godhead is, is one of love. And some have called this a dance, but that metaphor breaks down very quickly. But, but woven into the very essence of who our God is, woven into the very essence of our triune God, is love. And so when you and I talk about love, we can't be loose and fast with it. We don't have the right to make up what we think love is or is not. It is rooted in the very essence of our triune God. Apart from the love that we see in the Trinity, we know nothing of love because love would have never existed. It is a mountain that we fall on our knees before in awe and in reverence. It's not a pile of trash. We better be very careful if we define love as a pile of trash. So what must we say about love then? Well, we must begin where the Bible begins. The Bible finds the foundation of love in the Trinity. As human beings who have been created in God's image, on some level we get this. Even, those pe- even people who aren't Christians, we talked about this a lot this week in, our, in, in the discussions around the office. People who don't know Jesus, people from other cultures, other world religions, you still can see expressions of love, beautiful love, because there's this aspect that God's divine fingerprints are still upon us. You see a mother forego food for her child in a, in a third world nation. You, you see a father shielding his children from a deadly assault that, that he might die in the place of his kids. You see a, someone giving up a kidney for a friend in need. You see a husband and a wife faithfully serving each other for 50 plus years. And so even those who are far from God can love in beautiful ways, but we don't need to, I don't need to convince you that the world has a way of taking something beautiful that God has given us and twisting it and distorting it and making it something ugly. And so to understand love accurately, we're going to look to God. He is the origin of love, and our understanding of love is to be rooted in God's expression of love. And so knowing that love originates in God, how then ought we define love? I'm going to give you four things. If you're a note taker, I'd encourage you to write these down. I'm going to give all four up front. What are, the, what are the ways in which we think about the love as it's been revealed to us by God? Four things. It is undeserved. Should be on the screen maybe. It is sacrificial. It is extravagant. Other words you could use are opulent, luxurious, excessive, lavish. And it is joyously given. I'm going to argue for this here in a minute. But the, the love, what is love and what is the love God has revealed to us? Well, the love God has revealed to us is that his love is undeserved in that it's given to those who don't deserve it. It's sacrificial, it's extravagant, and it's joyously given. So what does it mean that God's love is undeserved? Well, God loves the least deserving. <laughs> I mean, look at what, what Paul writes in Romans chapter 5. He says, while we were still weak... Uh, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps a person, a good person, though perhaps for a good person, one would dare to even die. But Romans 5, 8, Paul says, but God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And I, I, I go back to that verse all the time. It's easy to love something that's lovely. That love of complacency. It's easy to love something that's lovely, that gives me good feels. It's, it's entirely a different thing to love something that is rejecting you, 
And the word the, the Bible uses is just, they're strong words. They're strong words. In that we were still sinners, rejecting God, rebelling against God, denying God, he still loved us. We do not deserve this love, but he's modeled it for us. And so the first measure of the magnitude of God's love that's been revealed to us is that it's undeserving. And that's why it's a great love. God's love is sacrificial. Probably if you've been in the church, don't need to convince you of this. We have all seen the cross. We understand the sacrifice that Jesus went through on the cross on the behalf of those he loves. But consider this price that God was willing to pay. I mean, Jesus said in John 15 that greater love has no one than this, that someone laid down his life for his friends. And I just, you know, again, I think when, when, you've, when you've been in the church for a long length of time, I think we can sometimes just kind of not recognize the depth of something because we're so used to the language. It's become so routine in our, in our thinking and in our, in our vernacular. But let me put it a different way for you. And there's some of you here, this is a very sensitive topic. In my, in my life and in my, my job, I, I, have, I have sat with parents who've grieved over their, their children. And they've grieved at the graveside of their kids. I've watched my sister go through this twice. And I know there's some of you in here who've lost a child. It is the most horrific, devastating, heart-wrenching. There are no words that describe it. I remember trying to define my sister's grief to a friend, and I said, gnashing of teeth. That's all I can think of. It is the worst grief you can possibly imagine. I don't think there's a more difficult thing a human being can go through than to lose a child. I think about the father sending his son who knew no sin, to the cross on behalf of people who are actively rejecting him. It is an unbelievable sacrifice that God has gone through. We talk about the loving relationship between the triune Godhead. I'm not going to even begin to, under, to try to claim I understand all of that. But when I see Christ on the cross at Calvary saying, Eli, Eli, lama shabachthani, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I see that beautiful, loving relationship disturbed, broken in some way, and you begin to understand the, the, the heart-wrenching sacrifice of the Father. That you and I might, as undeserving men and women, receive the sacrificial love of God. So God's love isn't just measured by the fact it's undeserved, it's also measured by the price that he is willing to pay. And he paid with his own son. God's love is extravagant. That word might not totally get it. It's excessive. It's opulent. God overgives in ways that we can't even begin to understand. The amount of good that men and women receive who come to faith in Christ. Jeremy asked a question a couple of weeks ago. We were driving in a car, and I don't think it was a throwaway question. I think he wanted to spark real conversation, and he said, hey, how do you define grace? You know, and I go to the textbook answer. It's God's unmerited, undeserved favor. It's rooted entirely in the character of God because there's nothing in me that's worthy of his love, but he's given it to me because that's who God is. And this grace is a grace that's enough to wash away the vileness of my sin. And it's rooted in his love. And I just started thinking, and that, that silly question that Jeremy asked on the, on the freeway has been in my mind for two weeks now. And I imagine there's going to be a day when I stand in the presence of Jesus, whether he returns or I die, and I'm standing in his presence, and the absolute wickedness of my heart intentions are going to be laid bare, and I'm going to see the grace of God through his son Jesus by his shed blood manifested in grace. I'm going to recognize the depth and the, the breadth and the width and the height of God's love, and I'm going to begin to worship him. I'm going to fall on my knees and I'm going to be like, God, you, your love is incredible. 
it saved me, it's undeserving, it's sacrificial, and I'm going to worship, and, and there's going to be nothing impeding that worship, because I'm going to be with him, and all that, the hindrances of sin is going to be forever gone. And I'm going to be in the presence of Jesus, and with, with total honesty and completeness, I'm going to be on my knees singing praises to God, uh, trying to exhaust the beauty of his love and his grace, and I'm going to sing for 10,000 years. And, and, I'm gonna, and after 10,000 years, I'm going to look, and I will not have even put a, a droplet I will not have even honored a droplet of God's love. I can remember being at the ocean years ago, and the, and the seas were just crazy, and they were kicking up huge uh, foamy waves on the Oregon coast, and, and there was mist in the air, and some mist had landed on my glasses. And I can remember looking at this little droplet of seawater on my glasses, and it struck me. I thought, man, my knowledge of God's love, God's goodness, God's grace, God's mercy, God's character— is about as much as what's contained in this little droplet on my glasses when the fullness of who God is is greater than the oceans. And that's what it's going to be like. This is the love of God. This is the sacrifice that he has gone through on our behalf. And you would think if there's a God who has loved the undeserving, and then there's a God who has, who has um, uh, sacrificed himself uh, to extend love, and there's a God who he loves extravagantly, uh, Jesus said that, he, that, that God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him will not perish and have everlasting life. And so you think about all that God has spent and gone through and exhausted in himself that he might extend love to us. You'd think if it was me, you'd sort of have an attitude. Like, do you know what I've done for you? Like, do you realize the extent with which I might have a little attitude, might tap my toes, might be a little bit angry, a little bit frustrated. These people don't get how deep and, and wide and how amazing my love is, but, we're, but that's not the truth. His love is joyously given. It's joyously offered. I just, it's crazy to me. At this great cost to himself, it's joyously given, and perhaps there's no greater picture of God's love for us and his joy in loving us than in the parable of the prodigal son in Luke 15. I won't read it in its entirety. You're probably familiar with the parable. Think about this. There's a kid who wants his dad's inheritance, and in a very self-serving way, he asks his dad before he dies, give me your money. So the dad does, at great cost to himself. Son goes off, he parties, he, he, he leaves his father. He goes into a foreign land. He's filthy. He's, uh, he's neck deep in, in the muck and the mire, eating the, the food that belongs to the pigs. He recognizes how foolish his decisions and his actions have been. And he thinks, I'm going to go back and grovel in front of my father, and maybe he'll let me be a servant. And so with shame and a hung head, he begins to wander back home. And the father is watching, and the father is watching. And when his son is still a long way off, he doesn't step out on the porch, fold his arms, and tap his feet, and wait for the son to come and grovel. What's the father do? He runs. With great joy, he sprints to his son. His son wants to fall to the ground in shame. The father wraps the arms and says, no, kill the fatted calf. Put a ring on this man's hand. Put a robe around him. We are going to celebrate my son who had, who had left, has come back, and has returned. This is a picture of the joyous way in which God loves us. Isn't that incredible? This is the standard of love. John Piper puts it this way. He said, the most beautiful love in the world is this divine love that pays the highest price, the life of the Son of God, for completely undeserving enemies, to give us the longest and greatest happiness in his presence, and he loves doing it. And then Paul has the audacity in Ephesians 5 to say, be imitators of God. As beloved children, walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and a sacrifice to God. You see, this is the mountain that ought to define the way we think about love. 
This is the standard of love that we are to measure our love by. Our love is to be offered to the undeserving. We are to love others even if they do not deserve to be loved. It's to be a sacrificial love without regard for returns. It's to be an extravagant love where we don't hold back, but we love in a way that will be for the greatest good of the one receiving our love. And we love in a joyous, joyous way. Not begrudgingly, but we're so thankful that we have the opportunity to do so. So that's love. I hope you tremble at the base of that mountain. How do we do it? That's the second question. How do we, okay, God, I believe you, Paul. That's what love is. How in the world do we love in this way? How can you and I love the way God wants us to love? It's one thing for us to have this conversation. It's one directional. I'm up here. I can talk about the theological underpinnings of, of, of love as we understand it biblically. And we can kind of get up on this idealistic perch and observe and muse uh, the love that God has shown. We can observe it and interact with it theoretically, theologically. That's one thing. It's another thing altogether to step out of this church and step back into your world where relationships are messy and hard and difficult and painful. There's shame. There's betrayal. There's toxicity. There's numbness. There's history. And then it becomes significantly more challenging. Because we need to contextualize this invitation to love in those messy contexts, right? Marriages and families and friendships and workplaces and neighborhoods. The words of God through the Apostle Paul telling us to walk in love and to give ourselves up, to love sacrificially as an imitator of God. Man, you're going you're to go to work tomorrow. Some of you love your job, some of you don't. Some of you are going to walk into a toxic work environment tomorrow and where you're unappreciated, where there's a transactional relationship, where you're a number. Some of you are going to walk into a dysfunctional family where there's manipulative behavior, there's a history of abuse, all sorts of things like addictions and history that just makes family so difficult. Some of you are going to walk into a strained marriage where there's been broken trust and there's selfishness, you're not on the same page, there's strain, financial strain, strain with parenting, strain with history. Some of you are going to walk into friendships and friend circles with roommates and your tribe, but there's, there's disloyalty and there's some gossip that exists. There's some betrayal, again, some more toxicity, and you're thinking, how do I love in this context? I think our, our understanding of love kind of is in that first camp that Jonathan Edwards, I think we tend to default to thinking about love as this love of complacency. We tend to be really decent at loving when we feel like loving. When, when our love is rooted in the value of the thing being loved, it tends to be a little easier for us. When we feel feelings of affection, we often follow up those feelings of affection with actions of love appropriately. Affections stir our hearts, and so then we choose to love, and we love someone or something because it's lovely. I remember the first time I saw my wife. I'll keep it PG. Uh, I, I grew up in this little town in Montana. I think I might have shared with you guys in the past. There, I was... I was one of 14 kids in my graduating class at public high school. And so there's seven girls. And so I lived in a town called Victor. And so our standard of beauty was, was measured on the, um, the control group. And so my family and I developed this saying. We would say, oh, man, so-and-so's pretty or so-and-so's handsome. And we'd say, handsome or Victor handsome? Because we were in Victor, Montana. So there was a different standard of beauty because there just wasn't a lot to choose from. 
So I knew a whole lot about Victor Pretty. There was some, there was a lot of Victor Pretty, Victor Montana. And then I met my wife August 14, 1993, and I thought I was going to die. I was like this. And she was from Wisconsin, which for me was exotic. And I'm like, <laughs> what? She was like, I was like, what? And then, like a puppy dog, I followed her around for four years and never asked her out. She, we'll tell you next week, but she actually asked me out on her first date, which is pathetic. Uh, but, yeah, I mean, she was lovely in every wholesome way you can imagine. She was lovely, and I was super into her. It's easy. That was a love of complacency. It was an affection. There was lots of affections, whole lots of feels going on in my heart back in those days, and still to this day, but it's different now, right? And so we have a, we have a tendency to, to let our affections, our emotions, our momentary seasonal dynamic feelings of love, we have a tendency to let them dictate or drive our expressions of love. I show love when I feel like showing love. But that's not the way God, through Paul, exhorts us to love. Certainly, there are still affections connected with love. It's, it's, it's broad, it's complex, but, but our, 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 our loving is not anchored to our affections or the feels that are going on in our heart. We know this, but we have to think about this again. We're, we're to imitate God's love of benevolence. His love of benevolence, it's rooted in the character of the one who is loving. Your love is not based on how lovely the thing is. Your love is to be based on the character of your, of your soul. As men and women who've been, who've been objects of this divine agape love, men and women who are undeserving at great cost to God, who've received an extravagant love that's been joyously given, as that's renewing you, being filled with that, you're to then look around and you're to love people with that very love. It's a love of benevolence. It's a self-denying love. It's based on the love given and what it can do for the other person. I'm not keeping tabs, in other words. I've done this, 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 and this. What have you done for me? No, that's not love. That's manipulation. So what does this love look like? Well, it looks like the cross. You want to know what it looks like? It looks like the cross. You and I are utterly undeserving. But Christ pursued us as we were denying him. You and I have been bought at a tremendous sacrificial cost. Christ absorbed the wrath that your sin deserves and my sin deserves. He tasted the death that you deserve and I deserve, but he gives us new life. And what he gives us is extravagant. He has taken our shame and he's given us his righteousness. And he's given it joyously. He's given it joyously. Our relationship with God is a mixture of this complacent love and this benevolent love. The love of complacency is love that is rooted in the, in, in the, in the thing that is lovely. Well, there's nothing more lovely in all of the universe for all of history than God himself. So with awe and reverence and worshipful hearts, we fall on our knees and we worship our God. It's a love of complacency. And as we worship God, he loves us with this love of benevolence. His love does something in us. His love is not, a, it's a part of his character, but it's for our good. It's this beautiful relationship. John Piper has this famous saying where he says, God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. And so we have this invitation to love. And it looks just like Jesus. And I think about it this way, and this is maybe kind of cheesy, but Think about the great commandment, right? You go back to Deuteronomy 6, you've got the, 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 the Shema, and it's, it's God's command to Israel, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. And then, and then in Matthew chapter 22, a, a, a religious lawyer asked Jesus, hey, what is the greatest commandment? And Jesus says, you know, in the greatest commandment. Oh, here's the greatest commandment. All the law and prophets hang on these two commandments, he says. 
Church, here's what you're to do. You're to love God with all of your heart, soul, and mind, and you're to love others as yourself. And I think about the, the, the order of those two commands, to love God and to love others. And I think about what we're grappling with today. How do I love others well? When I think about it like this, you know, if I'm running around the world and I don't have, and my cup's empty, it's, when I don't have a whole lot to give, we start entering into 50-50 propositions with people we're loving. What, what can you do for me? We withhold. We're empty. We're tired. We're, there's not much going on. And so it's very difficult to love others. But what God has done in loving us, pursuing us, saving us, is he has done this, this amazing work in us and that our primary love relationship is not horizontal with those around us. It's, it's vertical with the God who loves us. The cross reveals God's love for us. And so we're not, to, we're not trying to pull out of a dry well, but God loves us. He just fills us up. You know what? And he fills us up. It's like suddenly I, my need to be loved, I'm not sucking it out of my human relationships. We all have a need to be loved. And I can, I, can, I can direct my eyes to the human relationships and I can say, love me! And I can try to suck it out of the people around me and destroy the relationship, become a toxic codependent. Or I can see the order here. Love God. And I look to him and I know his love is this amazing love that I don't deserve, that's sacrificial, that's extravagant and joyously given. And God begins to fill me up and it just begins to overflow. And you know what happens when you're overflowing? Incredible. We have exit. You guys are freaking out, aren't you? That's so funny. <laughs> Water on the stage? You know, we are, then we have something to draw from, right? When I am, my need to be loved is 100% met and satisfied in God through his son Jesus. I'm loved perfectly, fully, infinitely. Then I can love excessively the people in my life because I'm not worried about what I'm getting back. Cool side note. Also in life, when we go through hardships and difficulties and challenges, especially to an unbelieving world, when you're going through life and you bump into walls, you bump into hard things, look what spills out. Not wrath, not malice, not anger, not self-loathing. When God is filling you with his love and you're bumping around the world, the love of Christ is filling, spilling out on those around you. Amen? And so this is the picture we have. Love God, love others. I wasn't sure if I was going to do that. I love that you guys, <gasps> water. <laughs> so what is love? Let's go back to the four things that love is, right? What is love? And how do we love others? How do we love like God loves? Well, we have to love the undeserving, right? So what's that in your life? Who are the undeserving in your life? We have to love others even if they do not deserve to be loved. Uh, Jesus turned this on its ear, man. When you read the, 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 the Sermon on the Mount, chapter 5, Jesus said, you've heard it said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes the sun rise on the evil and on the good, and he sends rain to the just and the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Don't even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You therefore must be perfect, as your heavenly Father is perfect. To give undeserved love means that we don't use love as a leverage. We just offer it. There's no strings attached, because if there is, it's not love. I think about this when it comes to the witness of the church. There's a guy, a guy who's not a Christian. He's a very well-known guy right now. Maybe some of you have heard of him. His name is Jordan Peterson. 
He's this clinical psychologist from Canada, and he got thrust into the main, the, uh, kind of the main spotlight about four or five years ago. And I've been watching Jordan Peterson's journey. And Jordan Peterson is an atheist. He's, a, he's an intellect, he's an academic, and he's an atheist. And he talked about being an atheist, but he also made a lot of sense in some other areas, so he, he picked up a big following. But over the last four or five years, as he's gone through a very high-profile struggle with mental illness and some other things, he, he's come out recently and said, I'm no longer an atheist. I don't think he's a Christian yet. He's probably a theist who's pursuing the, who, who he believes God authentically is. But he's doing it in a very visual and honest way. It's been interesting to watch. That's beside the point. One of the things that Jordan Peterson said in the video I was watching the other day is he was talking about some of the stumbling blocks for him coming to the church as the expression of, of who God is. And he's talking about the church's uh, unwillingness to fight for the souls of people who are heading to hell, but rather quibbling over moralisms. Just think about what he said. Here's what he said. He said, I think there's too much of the moral authority still in the church and not enough of the love that helps people avoid the fire. And I think about that when it comes to the witness of the church. We did a series over Christmas where we talked about what it means for us to see the stranger as neighbor, the neighbor as friend, and then to lead the friend into the family of God. The fuel that makes that work is love. And if we don't have love, none of it works. We can't even be the church without love. The one thing that Jesus said would distinguish us from the world is love, the way we love one another. And so Paul warns, he's like, hey man, if you speak in tongues of men or angels, but you do not have love, you're a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and cannot fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, if I have a faith that can move mountains but do not have love, I'm nothing. If I give all the possessions I have to the poor and give my body to hardship that I may boast, but do not have love, I gain nothing. And so what does love look like lived out? How do you love? Will you love in a way where you love the undeserving. You don't cross your arms, you don't tap your toes, you engage and you love. Love is sacrificial. Without regard for returns, you, you just love, sacrificially. Jesus said, greater love has no one than this, than someone lays down his life for his friends. And I'm sure you've probably seen some sacrificial, selfish, selfless love. I think we've all seen expressions of that in our life. It's just beautiful. When you see it, it's beautiful. And I don't think when you're young, you don't recognize it. When I get older, I look back at my dad. Though my dad had lots of flaws like every dad does. My dad, like, he was a blue-collar guy, dropped out of high school, started logging at 18 in 1964 in Montana, logged my whole life. And in his 40s and 50s, here's my dad in neck-deep snow, carrying a chainsaw up and down mountains just putting his life in danger to put food on our table. My dad would drive 150 miles one way to work and then drive 150 miles back because he didn't want us to not have a dad in the home. My dad would go without sleep for days to be at my football games. And when the, when the, the spring melt would make the roads muddy and they couldn't haul logs, my dad would go pick up aluminum cans from the side of the road to sell them at the local recycling place so we could have money. It, my dad would do anything. He would sacrifice anything to make sure we were cared for. An amazing example for me growing up. And now my dad's 75, he can barely walk. His knees are trashed, his shoulders trashed, his back is trashed. He sacrificed himself for us. Love is sacrificial. What would it look like in your world if God filled you with his spirit as you entrust him? As the love of God flows out of you, if you recognize I can't out-sacrifice him, I can't out-give him, I'm not holding anything back. I'm going to love in a sacrificial way because I'm not missing out on anything. It, what, would, what would it look like if we began to love in such a way? And it'd be revolutionary, wouldn't it? And then our love needs to be extravagant. 
We're not to hold back. We're to love in a way that will be for the greatest good of the person that you're loving. In 1 John, John says, see what, in chapter 3, he begins the chapter by, by kind of talking about the love of the Father. He says, see what kind of love the Father has given us. But then towards the end of the, of the third chapter of 1 John, chapter, verses 16, 17, and 18, here's what John writes. He says, by this we know love, that he laid down his life for us. So he's rooting love in the, the work of Christ. That he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. If anyone has the world's goods and, and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. Oh man, what would it look like in your closest friendships if, if, you, if, you, if God, by his spirit, emboldened and empowered you and enabled you to love in extravagant ways? How would that revolutionize your family? How would it revolutionize your friendships, your marriage, your relationship with your kids, your relationship with your parents, your relationship with your teammates, your small group, your church? Man, there's a book called uh, Critical Journey where these people talk about the, the, the journey of the Christians and they talk about the, the very few saints get to the end of the life and they have walked with God so faithfully that he does a work in their life where they just get to a place and maybe you've seen these few silver-haired saints who get this and they just get to a place where they recognize that they cannot give God that his love is unending, and, and they just say, I'm just, I want to live. They literally, they don't, like, they, just, they live a life of love. And you watch, you're like, what are you doing? It's just, it's so shocking to see someone live in such a countercultural way, to live a life of lavish, loving others. But that's, that's what we're, that's the love that Christ has modeled for us. That's the love that we see in the scriptures. And then lastly, it's to be joyously given. It's not to be done begrudgingly but joyously. There's, an old, there's a prophecy in Zephaniah that kind of looks forward to Jesus. And, the, and, the, and the, the prophet says, The Lord your God is in your midst, the mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exalt you with loud singing. And there's this picture of God joyously laying down his life that we might be redeemed and saved. So if we could do this, if we could love the undeserving, if we could love sacrificially, if we could love extravagantly and joyously. We can't do it apart from God because we're always going to default to selfishness. We'll get it right a little bit of the time, but most of the time we'll default to selfishness. So this has to be the Spirit of God as regenerate human beings who, who, who fix our focus, who love Him with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength first, and through Jesus, as, as God fills us with His Spirit and begins to wash through us so that we can then have the, the, the means to love those around us. If we could do this, if we could, if we could love the undeserving and love sacrificially and love extravagantly and love joyously, how transformational would that be? Can you imagine if the church of Christ, every member, every person who is counted as, as Christ, if everybody, by, by the power of God through his spirit, could love in this way, it would revolutionize the world. It would turn neighborhoods upside down, families upside down. It would change the world. It would. I just think we just get so beat up and so wounded by the world around us, we begin to shirk back and hold back. But man, this is an invitation for us to love, to empty ourselves for the good of others. And there's going to be a day, even if you, if you somehow get to the point where you live the life of love, and you feel like, oh, I'm just, I'm just, 
and, and God does a powerful work in you and you just love others extravagantly and selflessly and sacrificially, if God gets you there, you're lovingly undeserving, and you, you empty your whole entire life, every breath you breathe, every, every penny you make, every hour you're awake, if you give all of that back in love as an offering to God, there's going to be a day when you stand in his presence and you're going to look at all of your works, all of your love, and it will be filthy rags compared to the extravagant, benevolent, luxurious, sacrificial love that God has already shown us. So for the next few weeks, we're going to talk about how this is contextualized in the marriage relationship, in our families, whether you're married or not. These next two weeks will be helpful. They'll help us. Would you pray with me? Father, there's going to be a day we, we, we fall on our face in holy reverence before you. In, in your love, the magnitude, the depth, the breadth, the width, the height of your love, the, the, the scales will begin to get peeled off from our eyes, and we will see how incredible your love is. God, we'll sing about it for 10,000 years, and we'll never even come close to denting or coming close to wrapping our arms around the love that you have shown us. Thank you for loving us even though we're undeserving. Thank you for, for sending your son Jesus to the cross that in and through his, his life, his death, his shed blood, and his resurrection, we, we, we are saved and we, we, are, we inherit eternal life. Thank you that you extravagantly pour out these blessings on us. And God, thank you that you do it joyously. Today, God, as we think of your love for us, God, would you do a work in our lives? through your spirit, God, as we entrust our lives to you, Jesus. God, would you, would you do it? Would you convict us of sin in this moment, God, where we have been holding back, being selfish, not loving like you would call us to love, where we, have, where we have called love a pile of trash. God, would you convict us of the ways we've got it wrong in our lives, in our life as a church? And God, would you correct us? God, would you correct us? Would you draw our eyes up to you? Even right now, as we sing a couple of songs, God, would you draw our eyes back up to who you are? to your loving character, God. Would you inform our worship by the truth of your love for us? And God, would you ra radically revolutionize our world? Whether it's the world that exists within the four walls of our home, or the four walls of our church, our community, and beyond. God, would you revolutionize our world and send out your saints as men and women who are equipped and called and joyously love those around them. We love you, Lord. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.